Ray Brown's Talking Birds. Made possible by the generous support of the Bird Watchers General Store, Orleans, Cape Cod, BirdWatchersGeneralStore.com, and Ocean State Bird Club. Proud to sponsor Talkin' Birds. If the chill of winter has kept you indoors, March is a good time to get back into the swing of things with a bird walk. Ocean State Bird Club in Rhode Island leads free walks all year round, and we'd be happy to have you along. Check us out on Facebook or on our website at OceanStateBirdClub.org. Ocean State Bird Club. Good morning. Welcome to our show, number 770. Broadcasting live today from the Massachusetts Audubon 2020 Birders Meeting here in the Hogan Campus Center at Holy Cross College in Worcester, Massachusetts. So this great event now in its 28th year is open to all. And if you're listening live Sunday, 8th of March, and are anywhere near Worcester, Massachusetts, please come and join us because the festival continues until 4.30 this afternoon. You can buy tickets at the door. Full details are at massaudubon.org. Well, on last year's show, noted birding author and poet Susan Edwards Richmond was our on-site guest. And darned if she isn't here again with us this year. But this time for just a brief visit to talk about a feature that will debut on our show next week in which Susan will let us know what's hatching in the new Talking Birds book nest. Good morning, Susan. Hi, Ray and Talking Birders. I'm excited to share my nest egg of cool birdie books with you over the months ahead. Um, first, first, I want to just say a few words about my own debut picture book, Bird Count, which came out from Peachtree last October, and I've been flying high with it. It's a citizen science adventure about a girl who participates in the Christmas bird count with her mom and team leader, Big Al. There's lots of beginner birding techniques, a range of habitats, and fantastic illustrations by Stephanie Pfizer Coleman, another bird lover, that allow the reader to count different species of birds along with Eva. Cool. So I've got some great new picture books for the migration season, as well as an awesome field guide, collection of hands-on family activities, bird stories, and much more. So for our first nest egg, in a little while, stay tuned, uh, another week, I've got a great hands-on guide to sharing birds with children. It's called I Love Birds, 52 Ways to Wonder, Wander, and Explore Birds with Kids. All right. So we'll talk uh, next week on your debut presentation. Sounds great. See you then. All right. Susan Richmond here with us. And now a little preview of our mystery bird contest. Jesse, could we hear that mystery bird? How about a couple of clues? Our mystery bird is a bright, buttery-colored little songbird with a thin, black-pointed bill and black eyes. The male has chestnut-colored streaks on the breast. The female might also have a little streaking, but not much. Our bird is a neotropical migrant, kind of an early bird among the migrants coming north. Breeds pretty much all over North America, feeding mostly on insects gleaned from foliage or captured on short hovering flights. Some clues in the sound of our mystery bird. As usual, a beautiful flock of prizes this morning, including the Droll Yankees Observer window feeder that lets you see the birds up close with an unobstructed view. Nothing between you and the bird but your window. Bonus prizes uh, from the LarkWire app. This is such a cool thing. Helps you learn bird sounds in a game format. So you can pretend you're not even trying to learn, but you will uh, just uh, in the process. 
Another bonus prize, a 12-ounce bag of our favorite coffee. Delicious, shade-grown, bird-friendly, birds and beans coffee. All coming up in our Mystery Bird Contest a little bit later on in our show this morning. Some of the stories and videos on our Facebook page right now and on our website. That's TalkingBirds.com. Researchers in New England say they've discovered that the kia, a species of alpine parrot, can use probabilities to make decisions. They say it's the first time this skill has been seen outside of humans and great apes. Also, it turns out that the great abolitionist Harriet Tubman was an unsung naturalist with deep knowledge of the region's environment and wildlife, and she used owl calls as a signal on the Underground Railroad. We have that story from National Audubon. And when is a bird a burb? Uh, National Audubon explains that one to us, too. Those are some of the stories and videos on our website and on our Facebook page right now. Lots of other stuff on our site that we think you might like. And that's all at TalkingBirds.com. So far, we've been able to be so thankful to Talking Birds listeners who have become Talking Birds ambassadors, and we're happy to say that that continues thanks to our great listeners who do that and help us spread the word about our show and about birds and conservation. And thank you to Daphne B. from Westport, Massachusetts. Thank you, Daphne. She sent us some great stories, by the way, that we'll talk about on next week's show. And thank you to Cameron Jones from Waco, Texas. He says, I'm a 28-year-old old machinist and i love talking birds the show inspires me to do more for the conservation effort he says i'll be sure to send y'all some pics from our next trash cleanup down here and he did exactly that and we'll uh, get those up on our website and facebook page very soon so thank you so much cameron and thank you to margaret dykeman from scottsdale Arizona. She says she gives lots of talks and will mention our podcast and include it in her list of resources. And speaking of books again, she has created a, a book about backyard birding in northern Arizona. Here's the website. You want to check it out. It's backyardbirdingaz.com. Well, still to come on our show today, we'll be joined right here at the Mass Audubon 28th Annual Birders Meeting by UConn Professor Margaret Rubega, who will tell us about her research into the decline of a favorite bird of ours, Ketura pelagica. She'll correct me in that pronunciation if necessary. The Chimney Swift. Plus, we'll catch up with the Bird Watchers General Store's Mike O'Connor in our Let's Ask Mike segment live from beautiful Orleans, Cape Cod, in which Mike will attempt to answer that age-old avian question, why do birds stand on one leg? And up next, a woodpecker that has some interesting ideas about what automobile radiators are for is today's featured feathered friend, presented by Birdwatching Magazine. For more than a quarter century, Birdwatching has been North America's premier magazine about wild birds and birding. Well, we all know that woodpeckers drill holes in trees. But 50,000 holes in one tree? Yes, there's a woodpecker in which individuals, in partnership with a few family members, will drill up to 50,000 holes in a single tree. The drilling site becomes known as a granary tree because each of those holes is used to store individual nuts. The nuts are acorns. The bird is the acorn woodpecker. It's a bird of western forests, oak forests, that is, 
spending many hours storing acorns in carefully tended holes in trees, as well as in telephone poles, fence posts, and even buildings. Acorns are such an important resource to the California populations that these birds may exhibit a rare behavior. They sometimes nest in the fall to take advantage of the seasonal acorn crop. But the acorn woodpecker doesn't eat only acorns, it also consumes almonds and walnuts, and in mild weather, flying insects. This distinctive looking bird is often described as clown-faced, with its white eyes surrounded by black, a mostly white face and black bill, and a big red patch on the top of the head, extending to the forehead in the male. And if you're driving around somewhere in the American Southwest, and your car unexpectedly overheats, there's just a chance that acorn woodpeckers could be the cause. They've been known to drill holes in automobile radiators. The acorn woodpecker, Melanerpes formicivorus. Today's Talking Birds featured Feathered Friend. Welcome again to our show, number 770, live today from the Mass Audubon Birders Meeting at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. As always, we invite you to visit our website. We have a kind of a really new, redone website that we think is pretty nice. It's TalkinBirds.com, and we invite you to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at TalkinBirds. Dr. Margaret Rubega is a professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Connecticut, where she's also curator of birds in the biodiversity collections, and she's also Connecticut's state ornithologist. Research in her lab addresses questions in avian conservation, ecology, and evolution to help explain why birds look and live and act as they do, and she's been chasing chimney swifts since 2012. She'll give a presentation here at the birders meeting today about that, and she joins us here now to talk about those remarkable birds, sometimes referred to as flying cigars. Good morning, Margaret. Morning, Ray. So great to have you with us. Thank you for, for taking time, and tell us what triggered your interest uh, in starting to chase chimney swifts. Well, you know, I I only stumbled onto chimney swifts by accident. At the at the time I started looking at chimney swifts, I'd been doing research on hummingbird feeding mechanics. And uh, that doesn't seem like an obvious trip to chimney swifts, except that uh, chimney swifts turn out to be hummingbirds' closest, closest relatives. relatives. Yeah. And some of what we had been seeing in the hummingbirds seemed very um, strange for a bird with beaks shaped the way hummingbirds is. And so we thought we'd go back to their nearest relative and see whether those some of those feeding mechanics were shared. And as soon as I got on to um, chimney swifts, became apparent that their population decline was a much more pressing problem. Mm-hmm. So these, uh, these are birds that are hard to see because of their behavior, roosting and nesting in chimneys. But as you're suggesting, they're increasingly hard to see because their numbers have diminished by so much. But how far have their populations fallen? Well, if you, if you look at the numbers, we've um, been, they're, they're on a, uh, about a two and a half percent a year, which doesn't sound like very much of the population. Oh, we lose two and a half percent a year, but over the last 40 years or so, we've lost 50 percent of all the chimney swifts there are. So if you you lost the equivalent number of people, 
right? If you if you just said, okay, how, how many people would we have to lose before it was sort of the equivalent of the amount of population, the state of New York and New Jersey would both be empty. Wow. So that's that's why they're referred to as a common species in deep decline, right? There's a lot of them, but falling fast. Exactly. Exactly. So there's still a lot of them around, and, and they are pretty widely distributed. Uh, but but it's clear that the population is declining fast. So how long they'll stay common um, is is the big question. Well, your presentation today, outline the outline for it, suggests that conventional explanations aren't really able to address the reasons for the decline. So where does that lead us? Well, it, it really leads us to the other, um, you know, the other part of the year. Chimney swifts are only in North America for sort of three four months of the year. We tend to think of neotropical migratory birds as our birds who happen to go south for the winter. But they're really South American birds who only come to North America for the part of the year where they can get access to this explosive insect abundance to feed their chicks and then they go right back south again. So when you you look at all the conventional explanations for chimney swift decline, or at least people's first guesses about what the problem might be, it turns out that, that those things are not holding up as explanations, and, and that means that we need to be looking at the part of their year where they're, they're not breeding and they're not here. So we hear a lot about uh, chimneys being a problem for uh, pretty obvious reasons. People are putting caps on chimneys now, and even when they don't, they're putting metal flues inside them and so forth, which makes them great as chimneys, but uh, not uh, useful at all for chimney swifts who kind of hook on to the inside of the rough surfaces of chimneys. Now you, uh, I know there was a, there have been several experiments in creating artificial chimneys and you did this at UConn, but had some, what, some kind of surprising results? Yeah, we did. We, um, we actually were very interested in the idea that you could replace habitat for chimney swifts with artificial chimneys, you know, uh, but the chimney, the artificial chimneys that folks were putting up are very big, they're very expensive to build, they're very heavy, and so you have to anchor them in place quite firmly, and that means that if you have put them in the wrong place, you've got a really big, expensive yard ornament that isn't actually useful to the birds. So we, we engaged in this whole project that was aimed at trying to understand What's the smallest thing that you can use that will act as, a, as an artificial chimney for swifts? Because they have a history of actually being quite flexible about where they will nest. Mm -hmm. They're known, for instance, to go below ground into stone-walled uh, wells uh -huh. and build nests there. They, they're, they'll nest inside barns and under the right conditions. So we figured it was sort of low-hanging fruit. Let's, let's, let's build an artificial tower, an artificial chimney for swifts that, you know, like bluebird boxes that Boy Scout troops could put together, that Audubon groups could put together, and, and then if they turned out to be in the wrong place, could be moved around. And the short version is, is that we put many, many, many of these things out, and the birds did not use them. And then we thought, well, maybe we're using the wrong sort of thing or putting it in the wrong place, and then we sort of did a very comprehensive survey of the state of where birds were actually in chimneys and also how many chimneys there were around them. And it, and it turns out that, that even with people capping their chimneys and lining them, there are still a lot of empty chimneys that should be 
perfectly useful habitat for swifts that are not occupied. Okay, so that doesn't really provide us the, the, the answer that we might be looking for, but one answer maybe still involves DDT banned in the U.S., but not in South America where the birds are wintering? Yeah, interestingly, that would clearly have an effect on the supply of bugs for them to eat when they're in South America. Um, but the effect of DDT on other birds has been eggshell thinning that leads to nesting failure. And um, all the studies of breeding chimney swifts um, that, are, that are available in North America, there are very many organizations in Canada and in North America tracking reproductive success in chimney swifts. And it turns out that if a bird, a chimney swift, builds a nest here, chances are it's going to succeed. It's, it's going to have chicks. So it's not a thinning eggshell problem in this case? It doesn't appear to be. So with all that in mind, where do we, uh, where do we go from here in determining what the decline is? <laughs> Any ideas? Well, the first trick is to find out exactly where it is that they are when they're not here. We know that they're somewhere in South America, and you would think, you know, 8 million or so birds, how hard can they be to find? Mm. But it, it turns out that they're not that easy to find because um, when they're in flight, they're very small, they're very fast, and they tend to fly very high. Um, that still doesn't explain why we have as little information as we have from South America. There's one record from 40 years ago of 50 chimney swifts being recovered in an area on the border between Colombia and Peru. Those could have been birds who were passing through. Um, they could have been, uh, that, could have, that could be a breeding area, but there have been, uh, not a breeding area, a wintering area, but there have been no additional reports since then. The e-bird records are very, very sparse for South America and Central America, so they're, they're sort of like monarch butterflies before we found where, where their wintering site is. In the brief time we have left, uh, Margaret, is there anything regular folks can do, maybe short of building an artificial chimney to help the birds? Well, it's certainly true that if you have chimney swifts in your chimney, um, an important thing you can do is not exclude them from your chimney. Uh, they're not hurting things. They're not bringing diseases in. Um, they're not in your chimney at the time of year where you most need to use your chimney. And um, leaving those those chimneys that are being occupied now as habitat is certainly crucial for the birds who are breeding. If we go on capping and lining, then, then that will turn into a problem. Um, the other thing that folks can do is support organizations like Mass Audubon who are, you know, actively trying to figure out what the problems are and are actively trying to protect habitat because in the end, for most birds, it turns out to be habitat loss. Dr. Margaret Rubega is a professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Connecticut, where she's also curator of birds in the biodiversity collections, and she's Connecticut's state ornithologist, and she joined us here for our broadcast from the 28th annual Mass Audubon Birders Meeting here at Holy Cross College in Worcester. Massachusetts. Margaret, thank you so much and good luck with your continued research. Thanks, Ray. Coming up next, our mystery bird contest in just one minute. The North American Butterfly Association is launching the Butterfly Habitat Network, a new continent-wide conservation initiative. Using decades of accumulated knowledge, NABA is scaling up efforts to protect, enhance, and create habitat specifically for butterflies. 
Butterflies are important pollinators of native plants and represent as caterpillars a major food resource for birds. Habitats critical to butterflies are essential to nesting waterfowl, neotropical migratory birds, upland game birds, and more. The NABA Board of Directors and staff have selected projects across North America as a starting point of the Butterfly Habitat Network. If we can save butterflies, we can save ourselves. It's more than just a slogan. It's the understanding that adequate, well-cared-for space for the wildlife of this planet will ensure survival and quality of life for human beings. Find out how you can help by visiting naba.org. Our Mystery Bird Contest is presented by Birdwatcher's Digest. Birdwatcher's Digest is much more than a magazine. Explore their publications, events, online birding store, and birding tours at birdwatchersdigest.com. We hope you'll call us on our Mystery Bird Contest because we have some terrific prizes uh, to award here. And as always... You don't necessarily have to get the right answer to be a winner. If no one else gets the answer, we'll do a little drawing and determine our winner of a Droll Yankees Observer window feeder that lets you see the birds up close uh, with an unobstructed view. It holds two cups of seed or fruit or seal worms, and it has three strong suction cups that attach right to the feeder. And right to your window, as a matter of fact. Bonus prizes include from the LarkWire app, the app that makes learning bird sounds a game. It's a download to your iOS device or to your uh, computer, laptop, uh, you know, um, what, what are the other ones? Desktop, uh, anything like that. Uh, plus, a 12-ounce bag of delicious, shade-grown, bird-friendly birds and beans coffee i believe it's being served today here at the mass audubon birders meeting but let me get back to you on that to confirm those are our prizes and our mystery bird the clues are well let's hear the sound of the mystery bird again could we hear that could we hear that sounds like sweet sweet a little more sweet something like that our mystery bird is a bright, buttery-colored little songbird with a thin, black-pointed bill and black eyes. The male has chestnut-colored streaks on its breast. The female may be also a little streaking, but not like the males. Our bird is a neotropical migrant from down there in Central and South America and kind of an early bird among the migrants heading north. Breeds pretty much all over North America, feeding mostly on insects gleaned from foliage or captured on short hovering flights. What is our mystery bird? Tell us definitively or take your guess. Either way is is fine. It's 781-837-4900. The main thing is to not wait until it's too late. 781-837-4900 is the number to call. 781-837-4900. Meanwhile, next we'll try to connect with Cape Cod and the famous Bird Watchers General Store and Mike O'Connor. Uh, that'll be next here. Um, Let's ask Mike live in just one minute. Talking Birds. We're for the birds. And we want to say thanks to another Talking Birds ambassador who's helping to spread the word about our show and about birds and conservation. 
I'm Maddie Bozen from Brooklyn, New York. I decided to become a Talking Birds ambassador because I was already telling all of my friends about the show. I would encourage anybody who is considering becoming a Talking Birds ambassador to just go for it. It's a fun way to connect with your friends, neighbors, and fellow birders. Talking Birds listeners, we hope you'll join our ambassadors family. It's easy to do. Just visit our website, TalkingBirds.com. Click on Get Involved at the top of the homepage and then choose the Become an Ambassador option at TalkingBirds.com. Join today and thanks. There's that music, a requirement of Mr. Mike O'Connor down there at the Bird Watchers General Store, Orleans, Cape Cod. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Ray. You up at the college on the hill, are you? We're up. Yes, we are at the Hogan Center, the Hogan Campus Center here at beautiful Holy Cross College in uh, Worcester, Massachusetts. Yeah, I That's almost went to are. Holy Cross, except uh, I didn't have the money and I wasn't smart enough. But other than that, I, I almost went. Those are the only reasons. Well, okay. Well, that's not. That's that, those are easy obstacles to overcome. But anyway, oh, yeah. it's not too. It's not too late. Mike, uh, somebody asked me the other day, why do birds stand on one leg? And my answer was, why not? But we figured but yeah, you might not? have a yeah a more definitive uh, answer or, or something more accurate or meaningful. Yeah, than well, that. well, we get this a lot. Um, a lot of the gulls we see out on the like the pilings or we see uh in a parking lot we'll say and they're, all, they're on one leg and folks think something happened it, it was a birth defect or was an injury or maybe a skateboarding accident or something like that took it out so the people have wondered that for a long time and the most obvious answer or the most answer that makes most sense is that it's heat conservation they pull up one leg and they tuck it underneath especially when it's cold and the and the bird can keep one leg warm at a time but it doesn't, um, it doesn't explain flamingos, which often live in tropical areas, and they're notorious for standing on one leg. They don't need to save any heat because it's warm where they are already. So then people come up with, well, researchers or scientists try to explain it away. One of the, one of the theories has to do with the fact that um, maybe they're trying to give a false impression that it's a flamingo. They stand on one leg, it looks like a stick in the water, and the fish come up, mm. and they're not afraid, except flamingos really don't eat fish. They're a filter feeder with their beak. They kind of siphon water, a little shrimp, and a little algae out of the water, so the fish don't have a reason to be afraid of flamingos. The other side is maybe they're trying to keep one leg dry at a time, because they're always standing in water, and if they keep one leg out, one leg gets a chance to dry out. Other theories have to do with the fact that maybe half their brain shuts off, so one leg what, they can sleep with one half their brain holding the, the body up with the other one tucked in and keeping it relaxed. And they've gone through a lot of theories, and some of them, you know, they haven't been able to prove any of them. But a lot of it, you see a lot of birds, even birds of prey and owls standing one leg, and it might just because it feels good. It's relaxing. They can get the tuck. Like we put our feet up after a long day, they just tuck up a foot after a long day, and it feels good for them. Wow. Boy, that was way better than my answer. Yeah, well, yours was pretty good, too, Ray, but, you know, it I just had to add good, a little. Yeah. Mine was very, you know, compact. Well, you're the one who you're made it on the class. I didn't, so there you go. <laughs> you are right about that. All right, Mike, thank you so much. <laughs> we'll talk to you next week. Sounds great. And, and uh, I'll tell you how I did at Providence College. That wasn't pretty either. <laughs> go fries. See you, Mike. Every Wednesday, Birdwatching Magazine sends an e-newsletter full of information of interest to birdwatchers, including news stories about birds conservation and science, photography tips, stories about places to go birding, 
bird ID tips, and much more. Best of all, the newsletter is free. Sign up today at birdwatchingdaily.com slash newsletter. We're back here at the Mystery Bird Contest trying to identify this mystery bird. It's a bright, buttery colored little songbird with a thin black pointed bill and black eyes. The male has chestnut colored streaks on its breast. The female might also have a little streaking, but not so much. What is it? 781-837-4900 is the number to call. And we have Josh in Thunder Bay, Ontario on the line here. Good morning, Josh. Good morning, Ray. How are you? Uh, we're doing well, thank you. Great great to have you on. And how's the weather where you are? We have a little sunshine getting through here. Uh, we have about three feet of snow. <laughs> okay. We love those we love those contrasts. Okay, well Josh, you heard the uh, clue <laughs> you heard the clues uh and the um, kind of sorry I asked, but you heard the clues and the description of the bird and the sound and all that. So what do you think it is? Well, sometimes we get them here in the summer, uh yellow warbler. Yellow warbler would be correct. Would we have some applause for the yellow warbler answer from Josh? Well, maybe not, but we, we try to imagine some applause. It's thunder. There it is right now. I knew it would be there eventually. They had to think it over a little bit. Make, we want to make sure we're, we have things accurately done here. Josh, thank you so much. St stay on the line. We'll get your uh, information. I realize we're out of time. Wayne Peterson and Paul Basich will be here with us next week. Thanks so much for being with us. See you next week. Ray Brown's Talking Birds. Made possible by the generous support of the Bird Watchers General Store. Orleans Cape Cod. BirdWatchersGeneralStore.com. And Ocean State Bird Club. Proud to sponsor Talkin' Birds. If the chill of winter has kept you indoors, March is a good time to get back into the swing of things with a bird walk. Ocean State Bird Club in Rhode Island leads free walks all year round, and we'd be happy to have you along. Check us out on Facebook or on our website at OceanStateBirdClub.org. Ocean State Bird Club.